0: Uh, we're in a series in the book of Hebrews, which has continued to remind us every week that Jesus is greater. It's a, it's a uh, document, a book uh, that was written, uh, we think a letter that was written to uh, a group of Jewish Christians, people had a rich, rich history um, uh, before, coming to, before turning to Jesus uh, and their ethnicity, and their heritage, their people, <laughs> all came um, out of the Hebrew Jewish tradition, and so these are people who understood these Old Testament uh, uh, stories. So we, today we just heard about Moses and a tabernacle and a temple and tents, and these are these are right uh, in the front of their, their thoughts. They're thinking about what it looks like to have a priest who um, does sacrifices, who represents you, who connects you with God. All these things. And, and the author here of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is so much greater than those things. Uh, that we assume there's some kind of either persecution or suffering or trouble, and it's causing them to reconsider maybe and think, maybe I should go back to that. And he, he's saying, no, 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 that's not even an option. Jesus is so much greater. He, he's everything. And so he's continuing to encourage them to cling to hold on to Jesus. He's using terms, don't drift away, hold fast cling to Jesus, hold tight to Jesus, run to Jesus. Um, it has been a great encouragement to me, I know, week after week to be reminded of that um, because it feels like week after week, I'm tempted to move towards other things. And that's this week, we get to a point in this passage um, in the book of Hebrews, kind of in the middle of the book of Hebrews, where uh, he, he really lands some things for us and just tells us uh, how important this Jesus is. And how really dangerous it could be to turn back to this other religion. Uh, I, I want to share this story. I think help will help frame our discussion today as we are in Hebrews eight. The story is about Buzz Aldrin. Now I'm sure you've heard that name, right? That's like a name you hear in school. Buzz Aldrin was one of the first astronauts on Apollo eleven to actually land and walk on the moon. Uh, and, uh, and he else just has a cool name, Buzz Aldrin. Here's a picture of him uh, in, you know, in space, I assume. Um, and uh, also a picture of something really interesting that I have been uh, recently learned about. This is uh, his personal uh, bag that he was allowed to bring some things into space. Now, the space is very limited there. And if you look to see what this is, it's interesting. That's a communion cup. So The story goes that Buzz asked uh, if he could take communion when he, when he got to the moon, when they landed on the moon. He asked uh, first NASA, and they were like, eh, "I don't know if you have space. Do we really need to add that to all the things going on? Is community wine going to get into stuff?" That's what I'm assuming. I'm not. A, I'm not an astrophysicist, or a, I have nothing. I have no idea how space works. But is it going to get into stuff? Is that even needed? He said it's really important to me that we have. Um, I, that I take communion when I get there. So then they said, okay, he asks his church, he says, Hey, I'd like to take communion when I get to the moon. I'm gonna, I'm gonna train for I mean, his whole life he's been training for this moment. We are gonna hop into this little capsule, we're gonna blast into space, and if we make it to the moon, we're gonna land on the moon, and I'd like to take communion when I get there. Right? And so his church says, Well, I they're, they're not sure. They come from a tradition. We're not sure if a, a non-pastor is supposed to. And um, he was a leader in his local church. So he said, oh, I think I could. And then they like, we don't really have a policy on space communion. Um, what does that look like? Is it going to float around? Is it like, uh, and so they had to kind of send it up to the top and, and make a decision. And they were concerned, like, is God going to be happy with this communion? Is this Going to be communion that is sacrilegious? Are you going to, is it going to be done right? Is there a certain way to do it? Right? A space communion was a new thing. Um, still kind of probably a new thing. And so they, they finally said, okay, you can do it. You can bring this little chalice with a wafer of bread and a little bit of wine in there. And so Buzz Aldrin and his team, right? They all fly to the moon and land on the moon. Speaking of incredible places that you visited, speaking of places you're glad you went, I don't believe any of us can say the moon, the actual moon, right? How incredible is that? You're in a room with a bunch of people and they're all sharing the cool places they went and then you get to say, I went to the moon, right? How cool is that? So he gets to the moon, he opens his, th- his communion supplies up, right? it says, uh, he says this, uh, this is the lunar module pilot. I'd like to take this opportunity to ask everyone listening, whoever and wherever they may be, to pause for a moment and contemplate the events of the past few hours. They just land, these people just land right? And I think this is the moment, right? This, this is the moment that gives us a little uh, bit into his heart, into his motivation for, for this communion, in this moment, you could say kind of two broadly two different things, right? You could say, let's take a moment to contemplate the events. How awesome are we? We have done. We got to the moon, everybody. We did all of these amazing things that were sitting on the moon. Let's take a second to just sit and be thankful for what we have done and what has got us to this place. We made it to the top. I mean, does it get... More incredible than this, or he says, "Let's take a few moments to contemplate the events of the last few hours." It give thanks in his or own own way. Then he pulls out a three by five card that he has in the, in this bag, in this bag with his communion, and he decides to read this card. And this gives us a little indication of. He says, "I am the vine; you are the branches." This is from John 15. Whoever remains in me, and I in him, will bear much fruit, for you can do nothing without me. He lands on the moon, and he decides to take a a different response, right? His response is, I can do nothing without you, God. His response, the reason he's taking communion is not to celebrate Himself, but he takes communion, whether it's to to just rem, actually do, do communion, remember what Jesus has done, but also just maybe, maybe one of those moments to make sure you're, you're, you're focused right, right? You're still turned to the right thing. And to remind himself, I can do nothing without you. I mean, I think what a moment, right? This really puts into perspective today what we're looking at. We're looking at this idea of religion versus gospel, this idea of the law versus this new covenant, this idea of uh, all I've done and all I can do, and I can set up systems to make it work so I can be near God and close to God and forgiven by God, or uh, I can rest in the works of Jesus, my works or Jesus' works. And I love this picture that we get from this moment in Buzz Aldrin's life where he decides, I made it to the moon. I have every right in the world to say, how good am I? Let's have a party to celebrate us. And he stops and he reads from John 15 and says, God, we can't do anything without you. What a picture, right? This picture of this religion versus this gospel. So let's, let's open up Hebrews 8. We just heard it read to us. Um, and we're going to take a little trip. It's uh, 13 verses. We're going to take a little trip through it quickly. And and consider what our author here is telling us about how important this is. And I'd say right now, today, and always, this is so important uh, to all people because we all, in our sinfulness and brokenness, we turn to, to this religion, to this law, to save us. And he's reminding us. Jesus has done the work. So let's start here in uh, Hebrews 8. I love the beginning of this chapter because it's every once in a while in scripture, it's so nice they just say this. Hebrews 8 says, Now the main point of what I'm saying is this. Thank you, author of Hebrews. How many times in my scripture I say, Just tell me what I'm, tell me the main point. What am I supposed to get to? Of all this, I've been reading chapter after chapter. I'm like, okay, so what exactly? And for us, we've been hearing about Moses and angels and the um, don't turn away, don't be a child. Jesus is the high priest and all these things about him being high priest. And then he says, okay, this is the main point. This is what I don't want you to miss. Now, the main point of what I'm saying is this. We have such a high priest who sat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Here's what's saying. We have such a high priest. This is Jesus. He sat down. Sitting down is this moment of, of it's done. It's finished. In fact, priests in um, the temples, uh, uh, the Jewish temples, were never allowed to sit down because there was always work to be done. It, it wasn't right to sit down. And so it's saying, you have a high priest who actually sits down, has done all all he has to for God. In the sacrifice, in the ritual, he has done it all. He has sat down. And where has he sat down? At this honored spot of authority next to God, next to the king. It's done. He, He sat. He's done with the work. The work has been done. And it says the one who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord. This is just referring to there's a temple that's set up. And as you get closer into the center of it, into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest went in there. That's where the presence of God was. Only they got into the presence of God. And now Jesus, we know as he, as he dies, the curtain is torn literally in the Holy of Holies. And now God and people, all that presence is together. There's no more person that just, that goes to be with God. But now Jesus has unlocked that for all of us. We, we've seen all of these attributes of Jesus as high priest, starting all the way back in chapter two. He's merciful and faithful as our high priest. He's able to help those who are tempted. He's great. He's passed through the heavens. Remember this? He's like cut through the jungle and made a way for us. He's able to sympathize with us. He's a high priest who isn't above us, He actually has come and suffered and knows what it's like to suffer and be in weakness. He's tempted as we are, but without sin. He understands temptation. He was appointed and placed by God. He's a forerunner on our behalf, holy, blameless, unstained, separated from sinners. He's not a high priest who is also a sinner who has to atone for his own sins or make right for his own sins. He is perfect Separated from us, yet understands us and is with us. He's exalted above the heavens, and he's made perfect forever. Um, we, we learn that he's like our is the high priest forever, always has been, always will be. He's not a high priest who dies. We don't have a cycle of of death mixed in with our representation with God. We have a high priest who is there forever. What great news! What great news we have. And then we'll move on here. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So you can explain now. This is a little bit of why Jesus is so much better than the high priests that you had. He is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer gifts prescribed by the law. They serve a, a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you in the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises lot going on there let's just stop this phrase is so important and so important as as we read our old testament the old testament is a thing that uh can bring such joy as we look at it, it we, we might see it as a oh that's like old it's how god used to be um right god maybe is wrathful there and angry and then jesus comes and changes it god has to make a new plan not true. This was always God's plan. He's saying the law. So this law that was given to God's people, this kind of set of rules and guidelines on how to live. You think of the 10 commandments. This was given as a shadow of what was in heaven. This 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 pattern of the temple of a priest walking into the holy of holies is just a shadow. Think about that when you're walking just yesterday we're at a park I'm walking uh, with my kids and I see their shadow on the ground, right and I go, okay, I kind of get an image of what the shape of them, their height, depending on where the sun is they're very tall or very short okay. I you get cut right and and as long as there is some light, you get a nice crisp shadow maybe sometimes it's kind of hard to see the shadow. You get an idea I could guess some things and kind of get a picture of who they are. The author's saying. When we look to the high priest here, this religious system, if that is it, if that's what's getting us into the presence of God, if that's what's rescuing us, if that's what's forgiving us, if that's what is, is ultimately bringing us right to the mountaintop, that's just the shadow. Turn your head and look at the person who's casting the shadow. You can see their face, you can see their mouth and what they look like and how, when they smile at you, you see the expression they make as they see you. You see how they're built, how their (laughs) arms and their bodies work. You see color and texture. You can hear them, smell them, like all that comes with a real person that we can't get from a shadow. I, I think he's saying, do you understand? This is what Jesus is. This is the difference between religion and the gospel, religion and a relationship, a person. This is what makes Christianity different and stand out. We are not a system or a way of life or a, a thing that, uh, a type of meditation or uh, steps um, or, or maybe like the, the lack of a system, whatever it is, this thing that's built to get us to the ultimate, to get us to enlightenment, to get us, um, maybe even to get us within to our own divinity, whatever that is. Right. We're in the business of connecting to a per a real person who makes us family. It's, it's incredible. That God made it this way. He always has made it this way. And he made his law to show us a shadow of what it is going to look like to be in a relationship and ultimately what it will be again to be in Eden or this great city he's going to build for us, this heaven with him. This is just a shadow of it. But we take the shadow and we end up worshiping the shadow and forming the shadow and thinking, this is it. We got to make this work just right. Look at the end of this last verse. He says, um, since this new covenant is established on a better promises, we have much better promises in the gospel than on religion. And the day that Jesus died and rose and the temple was torn, the curtain was torn and God's presence bursts into the world, religion died. But we still turn to it. So in verse 7, we hear this. For there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought. Would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people. Now, hear the phrase, but God found fault with the people. So there's nothing wrong with the first covenant, with this law. If there's nothing wrong with that, then there wouldn't be a problem, but There's something wrong with it. And God found fault with the people. Actually, this phrase in here is actually still referring to the people or to this this system, to this religion, to this law. And so God found fault with the people and and the way this law played out. Now he's going to quote um, Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is a book. When you hear Jeremiah, you should think exile. It's a book that is um, written by Jeremiah. God is speaking through Jeremiah. When God's people have been turning away from him and God has exiled them, he's, he's taken them out of their home or at least brought other people into their home and they no longer like are home. They're away. And they're just yearning to be home, to be in the place with God. And so God comes to them and this is from Jeremiah 31. Um, It's one of the longest, I think it is the longest Old Testament quote we get in the book of Hebrews. It's interesting what he says to these people who are away from home. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand, led them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. I turned away from them, declares the Lord. You hear this? This is God saying, okay, I found fault with the people. Here's what happened. I, I pulled these people out of Egypt. I gave them this law, this covenant, and what it was supposed to do. What the law does is it shows us that there is user error. That um, it shows us that it that the system that we set up isn't useful. We look at the Ten Commandments, we should follow, those and, and and we look at those and we can say, Okay, I gotta do all these just right. All right, can't have other gods. Don't use the names the name of the Lord in vain. Respect my mom and dad. Okay, I can I can do these. Don't kill someone. Okay, okay, okay. Write down the list. Right, if I get all these, I cannot I cannot steal my neighbor's donkey. Got it. I can do that. Right. We say I just gotta get all these. I get it perfect. I do it all right, and then God will be happy, and then God will accept me. God will fulfill me. I will have great peace and joy in my life. And he'll say, okay, you're good enough, Drew. Come on in, right? He says, no, the, the reason I gave you the covenant, the reason I have this law for you is to show you you can't. When you, when you match yourself up against just the Ten Commandments, let's say just pick three of them, you say, I can't do that in one day. I can't do that. And you say, I can't do this. And you say, God, nothing can happen without you. You say, I'm just a branch and you're the vine. I I need you. The law turns us and reminds us that our work will never do it, but Jesus' work will. We look to God to say, we need you to do the work. He says, God's people did not become faithful through that. They actually turned away from him. And so what does God do? He establishes a new covenant. This is the covenant I'll establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind. So he says, I'm going to establish this new covenant. This was the plan. To show you your need for me. And then give you the way to me. To show you this shadow of a a system, to go, you know what, high priests don't work when they're us. We need a high priest who has lived forever, who's in the order of Melchizedek, right? Listen to last week's sermon as we thought through what that looked like. I need this priest who is forever and faithful and good and can give themselves as a sacrifice. We should turn, I need you, I need this relationship. With this person, not more rules that I can figure out how to follow and be good. So God will be happy. So God makes a new promise to his people. This is the covenant I'll establish with my people after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put in my law, I will put my laws in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Remember that phrase? I'll be their God and they'll be my people. God loves to say this. And in fact, we hear this at the end of time. Um, beginning of our time when heaven and earth meet when God comes back and he eliminates sadness and death and suffering and he says, I am their God and they are my people. He's talking about this great end to this, this great family that he's forming. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me for the least of them to the greatest. For all forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. God tells the people in Jeremiah who are, feel like they are homeless and they, and they want a family and a home and a God. He says, I'm going to make a covenant and what it's going to be is work that I do. It's going to change your hearts and your minds and you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your people. You're going to know me. That's relationship language. Changing hearts, that's relationship language. He's going to say, there's even going to be a point where you no longer need to share with your neighbor this good news that God has done the work because everyone will know me. Is that incredible to think there's a time where everyone will know Jesus? We will all be family. Until then, we get to tell people that but there'll be a moment where that is true. It does not say, I'm going to make a new covenant that has different rules. Maybe they're easier. I realize you can't handle the ones we created. Please follow those. And then at the end, you can be in the family if you did that. It says, I'm going to do the work. I'm going to do the work. I'm going to do the work. And I need you to rest in me. Believe in me. Earlier in Hebrews, we heard the work that we're called to do is believing that Christ has done this. At the end here, even that, He's talking about a high priest. He says, I will forgive wickedness and remember your sins no more. Not just forgive, but they will run like like the scapegoat in the religious ceremony where we put sins on it and make it run off into the wilderness. I will do that with your sins. And then he ends it with this. By calling his covenant new, got the quotes here, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. He's saying this religion, the system you created that you think gets you closer to me, thinks gets your forgiveness, is obsolete. It's, it, it doesn't work and it's outdated and it will soon disappear. I love that this phrase comes right after he even says that he'll forgive wickedness and remember sins no more. It's, a, it's such this cool connection, right, that sins are going to be forgiven in God and the law, it will forever also disappear. Here's what we see in Romans uh, as we think about this idea of law and gospel and religion and relationship. In Romans, it says the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. It seems strange why we God want our tresp- our sin to increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. The more we sinned, the more this grace, this gift of forgiveness is even greater. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the more more we sin, actually I don't, this passage isn't saying we're actually going to sin more, it's just saying we are more aware of how sinful we are. It shows us and clarifies, it shines a light that we need shown to show us that we are so sinful and in need of a savior, it causes us to fall to our needs and beg forgiveness saying, we can't do this. And instead we say, I'm going to find a way to make this work. Or we can turn and say, I need you, Lord. I need you. We become dependent on him. Without the law, we might guess at what God wants for creation to to thrive. But with the law, we realize we can't live up to the law. We see actually what it takes and we realize we need our God. The law should make us run to Jesus. It it, it kind of is like, um, I think of uh, there was a moment where I was wrestling with my kids and they were jumping on me. Um, And as they got bigger, I was like, hey, jumping on dad breaks his ribs could you not they're like what that hurts you yeah so the next time they do it right they again because yeah they do that and that hurts i've told you that hurt oh it's a little different that time we've talked about how much it hurts dad when you jump on his ribs Could we maybe not jump on the ribs now you know now you're aware of how much that's hurting, right? There's a, there's this awareness. It also says in Romans, in Romans 7, so my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. So it says this law, we we die to this, right? Which is so good. That you might belong to one another, to him who was raised from the dead. You hear this language? Very relational language. In order that we might bear fruit for God. So this law causes to bear death and the, and the gospel, being in Jesus, causes us to actually bear fruit. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law, so this law stirred up in us, these, just a desire for ourselves, is, uh, that we're working this, so that we would bore the fruit for death. Wow, well, i think of that, fruit for death. But now by dying to what once was bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in a new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. You hear this? We have this new spirit. In fact, even if you read about, uh, when you read about the fruit of the spirit, it says in there, there's this new spirit. The law the law doesn't work. The law doesn't bring about the fruit of the spirit, but Jesus does. It, so not only is this law what saves us, what res, I mean, not only Jesus is what saves us and rescues us, but it also produces fruit that is a blessing. It brings peace and self-control. This is what's going to bring joy and peace and justice to our communities. Us resting in Jesus, believing in Jesus, being filled by Jesus, overflowing that Jesus to people, not creating a system where we become really good people and then we bring that really good people system to others. It's incredible. I want to share with you how this plays out for me. As we kind of come to a, a close here, here's here's how Drew functions in a religious or gospel setting, right? Because I turn to religion. I, I want to turn to a system, a, a way that I can do things to make God happy and forgive me or do things that will bring me joy and peace and not just turn and cling to Jesus. So I got a few of these for, us, for you to, to see. These are these are versions of me. And I'm going to bring out my emojis. This might be... Maybe this is like old guy where this is not cool anymore. But I love these things. We're gonna start with exhausted Drew. Religious Drew. My works, not Jesus works. If I'm still if I'm holding on to religion, I become exhausted, Drew. Look at that. The tank is empty. I'm sad. I become exhausted. Following religion and this system wears me out. Which rule? When am I supposed to follow it? Is God happy with me? Am I doing the right thing? Suddenly I'm suffering. Is that because of bad karma? Did I do something wrong? And God's not happy now. God, what can I do to make things right? I'm tired. Religion tires me out. I don't rest in Jesus. I rest in my works, which wears me out. Sometimes it makes me skip, become like, I got to find a new thing. Maybe that will be it. Maybe that I get exhausted, find a new thing. Exhausted Drew turns into apathetic Drew. I just hide. I sink back in the, in the hedge, Right? It's not the hedge of protection. It's just the hedge of apathy. I sink back in the edge. Exhausted Drew leads to apathetic. I just don't care. I become tired. I know there's probably a way to live, but it's just so tiring that I don't care. Maybe everything just becomes permissible, and I just just do whatever. Just keep to yourself, hide from God, just wait it out. It's, it's too much work. I can't figure out what I'm supposed to be doing. The next Facebook video tells me to do something else. And I think, what am I supposed to be doing? What am I supposed to be posting? What makes me good and bad? I don't want to decide anymore, especially in a world with so many options for spirituality. I don't want to decide which is the right way. Thankfully, Jesus has shown us what is the way, right? I can rest. There's rest in the gospel that Christ has said, this is how I call you to live your life once you have believed in me. There's, I can trust in the creator, how he wants creation. I know you're excited for this next one. This is one of my faves. I get tired, apathetic, and there's a point where I just shake my fist at God. <laughs> Why, God? I, I become religious, and I set up a system, and it doesn't work. And I say, I followed the rules. I made the right choices. I'm a pretty nice guy. Why is bad stuff happening to me? And I shake that fist at God. Religion makes me a, a, a why God drew. I often make up my own laws, which includes this disclaimer that if I don't follow these rules. It's not my fault. It's God's fault. I, I I have a picture of God that isn't true, but I say, oh, God, it's your fault. Which leads me to the blame them Drew. I love to blame someone else. If it's not God, it's someone else. Maybe it's God's fault for making me junky or impatient or he didn't make, give me self-control or instead seeing broken people around me and saying, if they just could pull their weight, then I would be fine. It's their fault for tempting me and bringing me sin. I'm only sinning because someone else has caused that or something else has caused that. They're the problem or something else is the problem. And then maybe I'll just create a new religion or system where I run from those things or I just get rid of those things or my new religious system is spending my days just pushing things away from me or hiding from things around me that cause me to not fulfill the other system. It's like system on top of systems on top of systems to try to make them all work somehow when I could push all that out of the way. It cling to Jesus who's done the work, and then out of that flow, a life of peace and goodness. This one, I think, is one of the things we've seen as just evil creeps into our hearts that we've seen this week. As we hear in the news about a man who decides to end other image bearers' lives. And he says they were I was concerned they were going to cause me to sin. Do you hear that? They, because of a, a sexual addiction or a porn addiction, because of uh, viewing people as less or more, however, racism could fit in there, all of this, seeing certain people as a temptation, and so saying, I have to be close to God. And God's going to be angry so I have to eliminate those people to get close to God. It create it's terrible, right? You don't ever do the thing to get close to God to to make it right to be enter into the holy of holies. Jesus does the thing and we hold on to him and he brings us with him. This is how sin entangles us, and it kills us and kills our hearts, even to the point we're willing to hurt, harm others, so that our religion will be fulfilled and that we'll be made better, we think. It's. it's I'll be careful, friends, that we don't think, oh, that's so bad. I would never, ever do that because that leads us to one of my favorites, self-righteous Drew. I'm doing so well. I'm not exhausted and tired, or at least I'm not saying it, because I've got it all figured out. i got the system figured out. I'm reading my Bible. I'm doing all the right things. I'm attending the right things. I've memorized all sorts of stuff. I found the secret of life. I found a ritual that will save myself. I actually found two for this one. This is one of my nailed it is one of my favorites. This one just seems look at this guy, self righteous Drew. Hey, this is the best move. The glasses. (laughs) I have figured it out, and not only does this lead me just to affect my own life, but this often can cause me to bring religion to other people. I'll say, hey, I figured it out. Here's what you have to do, and and in my occupation. It's dangerous. I can say, oh, just do these things, and then God will be happy with you. You'll find freedom and enlightenment in your life. Oh, that's like his job to figure that out. He must be right. Not only can we do that, but we begin to turn and even sometimes hate people who don't follow the rules. We act like they're less than us. We, we cringe when we hear about the person who's done really bad stuff and now says, They follow Jesus. Uh, I don't know. I think they need to clean it up a little bit before they can get in. I'm really good. I know. Or we might even flip it. We might see people who are better at the system and the religion than we are. And so we begin to look to them and even worship them and listen to their words more than Jesus' words. We spend our time trying to find all the right things from all the right people and say, oh, they're so good at this. Let's figure out how they do it. Right? You know how they do it? They cling to Jesus. So I become self-righteous, Drew. Just a couple more here. Mm -hmm. Self-righteous, Drew, often leads me to divine, Drew. Right? Look at that. I figured it out. I'm God. And whatever I'm feeling or thinking is right. It's true. The law I create and continue to change to fit my divine code for the world is the right code. I make truth. This might even cause me to jump around often to what is that truth, but I can do that because I have found that I am the center of the universe. I would never really say this. I'm not going to get coffee with you and say, hey, you know what? I've been having a hard week. I think I'm God. But I sure, in my heart of hearts, believe it at moments. Because there's a system that I'm trying to figure out. We see this throughout all of Scripture, right? We see this in the high priests that crucified Jesus. They've, they've held on to this power. They realize, man, we can have power and money and authority and control all these things, because we control this system. And lastly, I would hope each day we can turn from that religion. You ready? And we can, I can just be trust Jesus true. I can, I can throw those things aside. I can repent, which means just to turn. I can turn to Jesus and say, hallelujah, you are good. You have done the work. I can rest in your work because my work will never be enough. And what a gift that we don't have a religious system that we have to figure out and follow, but we have a God who wants to be in relationship with us and he's made this new covenant with us and this great high priest named Jesus welcomes us in. And that one day God will say, you are my people. I'm with you. All tears and sorrow will disappear. We'll be family. Nothing will separate us from God. Right now we feel, I think, as we live in exile. We're waiting for that day when we will be home with God. But until then, we can cling to Jesus. We can invite others to cling to Jesus. We can hold fast. We can know that in our suffering, Jesus is with us. We can know as we grow weary, Jesus is with us. That he hates our sin, but he has made a way. So, friends, let us hold fast and tightly to our great high priest, Jesus. Let's be filled by him. Let's look up from the shadow and see his face. And then let us overflow that gospel to others so that people would know religion is dead and Jesus is alive. That's good news today. That's very good news today.